What we need is more common sense. More common sense. We've got to use plain old common sense. Breaking down the world's nonsense. About how American common sense will see us through. With the common sense of Houston. I'm just pro common sense. For Houston, from Houston. Where is talking about common sense? This is the Jimmy Barrett Show. Brought to you by ViewIn.com. Now, here's Jimmy Barrett. All right, here we go. It's Thursday. I want to talk about your gas-guzzling SUV. I see you driving it. I see that big... Is it just me, or do, do Infinities look like tanks to you? They look like a tank to me. I mean, it's a very stylish tank, but it looks like a tank. And by the way, I have no problem with that. Have you ever noticed, by the way, what? why is it... Why is it that the smaller the woman, the bigger the SUV? Have you, have you ever noticed that? Or is, is that an observation that I'll, only I am making at this point? All the, um, all the tiny women I know drive big, huge, honking SUVs. And I heard an explanation for that once. It's not the women themselves who want to drive the big honking SUVs. Supposedly it's their husbands they want them to drive the big honking SUVs because they've got kids and a family, and the men think that, okay, my family's going to be safe in that big honking SUV. And there may be something to that. I certainly wouldn't want to be out there in a smart car. You could not pay me to drive a smart car, even for a test drive, on the expressways of Houston, Texas, under no circumstances would I ever think of doing something like that? That that to me is like saying, you know, <laughs> I rolled the dice when I got out of bed this morning. I thought, you know what? Let's just see what happens today. Let's see how many 18-wheelers I can bob and weave around. No, thank you. I, I, uh, I like a little something between me and the guardrail and between me and that 18-wheeler other than, you know, a, a car whose tires look like it, it belongs on, on those little battery-operated cars that you, you buy the kids. Not that those aren't cool. I, lo- I would have loved to have one of those when I was a kid. Okay, so what's the point of what I'm trying to say? Get used to the toy cars. And get used to SUVs that don't run on gasoline. General Motors today has announced it will end the sale of all gasoline and diesel-powered passenger cars and SUVs by 2035, making gasoline-powered vehicles evidently obsolete by 2035. Now, 2035 is not that far down the road. This is 2021, folks. We are 13 years away from the 2035 model year if they end up living up to their timetable, and there's no guarantee that they will. Ford Motor Company, have you seen the ads that they're running? You know, about not standing in the way of progress? They're completely they're completely in to green energy, and they're completely in to uh, doing away with the internal combustion engine. Man, if you had told me as a kid that the death of the internal combustion engine would come in my lifetime, I would have told you you were insane. And by the way, I don't necessarily quite 100% believe it yet. 
Because of a couple of reasons. Number one, and this is the biggest reason, infrastructure. Even if we were capable of producing enough electricity to charge these millions of vehicles we want to put on the road, even if we had the capability of doing that, and and we don't get that capability, by the way, without building more power plants, even if that were the case, where is the infrastructure for charging stations, for an at-home charging station that can charge a vehicle that is empty to full within a matter of an hour or two, not overnight? Where's the technology for that? Where is the battery that will take you 400 miles on a charge? Will these be hybrids? Will they have a gasoline backup just in case you do run low on electricity? You know, we don't have a lot of details at this point. GM's chief executive, Mary Barra, who evidently antagonized some climate experts by embracing the president's relaxation of fuel efficiency targets said the company is eliminating all tailpipe emissions from light-duty vehicles by 2035. She said, as one of the world's largest automakers, we hope to set an example of responsible leadership in a world that is faced with climate change. Okay, she got woke in a hurry. Another GM executive who asked for anonymity... Another anonymous person to describe details of the GM shift said the company would spend $27 billion on electric vehicles and associated products between this year and 2025, outstripping the spending on conventional gasoline and diesel cars. The figure includes refurbishing factories, investing in battery production in conjunction with LG Chem, that's a South Korean battery maker, the move evidently would not affect medium and heavy-duty trucks, but will include everything from cars and crossovers to full-size trucks and SUVs, such as Silverado and Yukon. No more gasoline-powered Silverado. No more gasoline-powered Yukon. No, no more gasoline-powered, I would guess, Tahoe. No more gasoline-powered Suburban. What about the Corvette? No more gasoline-powered Corvette? Would you spend $100,000 on a vehicle that you have to plug in? I guess, if, I guess if you have the money to spend on that, you have the money to spend on whatever you need in order to get a charge, right? That's, that's amazing to me. That, that's, that's 13 model years away. That's right around the corner. And listen, I'm not saying that I'm completely put off by the idea of not putting gasoline into a car or truck. I've, I've driven a Tesla. They got a lot to get up and go. They do. I think they're, I think they're great for, for driving around town where you don't have to put any miles on, where you don't have to worry about whether or not you're going to have to recharge sometime during your trip. But just like we've been talking about shovel-ready projects from time to time, stimulus money to rebuild roads, where's the money to put in the infrastructure so you can charge that beast? 
because until that is fast and quick and easy and accessible at home, at work, and on the road, going all electric doesn't make any sense. Hey, by the way, are we ready to build some nuclear power plants? Huh? What's, I mean, you want to cut emissions. Why aren't we building any nuclear power plants? Back with more in a moment. Jimmy Baird Show, AM 950 KPRC. Your summer vacation. Talked a little bit about this the other day. Um, I I, um, I want to mention it again because I don't want you to be shocked because I, I really firmly believe this is going to happen. The Biden administration, according to this story, along with the CDC, is considering mandatory COVID-19 testing before you can get on board an airplane to fly between Houston and Dallas, Houston and New Orleans, Houston and anywhere in the United States of America. Well, yeah, I know. They already did it for international flights. Now they're they're talking about doing it for domestic flights, which means uh, our annual beach week in North Carolina, if we're going to go, then we would have to no earlier than three days before the flight, we would have to go and get a test. Which means that let's let's say for the sake of argument, I go three days three days because they that's what they say it has to be within three days of travel. So um, we're going to travel on a pick a day, Jimmy. That we're going to travel on a Friday, which means on Tuesday I have to go get a test of whose results I have to be able to get back before I'm going to be getting on board that plane on Friday. Now, if I were to get a rapid test, which we, we, you know, get the results while you wait kind of a thing, which strikes me as the most practical thing to do if you're going to get on a plane within three days, then we know that those, those tests are riddled with false positives and false negatives. But let's say, let's say... Just for the sake of my illustration, let's say I get back a false positive. It is three days before I'm supposed to leave. I guess I can try another test the next day. And then I can try another test the day after that. So now I'm three tests into it, three tests I've paid for. And if I still have a negative, then or I should say a positive test, um, I guess I'm not getting on board that aircraft, which means I'm not going to North Carolina, which means the vacation I had to pay for in advance, I got to hope I can cheerfully get a refund. Not to mention the fact I can't go anywhere. I'm not going to be very happy. And so are hundreds of thousands of Americans are not going to be very happy. But I don't think this is about making us happy. Now, how they how would they would go about doing it, I'm not sure. I've, I've often, I, I, I thought at the beginning that they wouldn't be like in your face and say, well, you, yeah, you have to do this. I, I thought they would be a little bit more sneaky about it. Like, for example, they would, uh, you know, uh, the White House would call the, uh, the CEO of United Airlines and say, "Hey, listen, you know all that, uh, you know all that uh, stimulus money we got, you guys. 
to keep you folks flying, to keep, to keep you folks in business during all this stuff? Well, we need a favor. We need you to, uh, we need you to go ahead and require this. All airlines wouldn't like that very much. They don't like requiring you to do anything. Or I guess perhaps maybe the, the way to, to do it would be to, to, for them to call up the uh, you know, FAA. Say, yeah, we, we need you to add this requirement for flying. This, we need to make this an FAA rule so that the airlines can say, well, it's an FAA rule. We have no choice kind of a thing. So CDC officials have confirmed to reporters that the conversations about pre-flight testing for domestic routes is going on, and they are, quote-unquote, actively looking at doing the testing. I predict it's going to happen, and I predict you are going to be pissed. (laughs) And I predict I will probably be the same. Now, a step up from that would be if you are required to have a vaccine. Now, my guess would be at some point in time, that will also happen, but that will that will have to wait until enough doses are available so that you can go get a your vaccine anytime you want to get your vaccine. So that the only people who don't have the vaccine are the people who don't want to take it. And then that will be the stick to get you to take the vaccine. In the meantime, Dr. Fauci, you know, there was a town hall on CNN. And the town hall was last night, and you had Anderson Cooper there. He looks so earnest. He did. He looks so concerned. He looks so worried. You had, uh, you had, him is, is part of the panel. Dr. Sanjay Gupta uh, was also a part of the, the panel. And they were taking questions from around the country. And one of the questions that got asked of Dr. Fauci is, after I have the vaccine, can I just, like, travel like normal? Here's what Dr. Fauci said. You can get some degree of protection, some degree that is endurable, you know, 10 days to 14 days after the first dose, but you can't rely on that. The maximum immunity begins about 10 days to two weeks and beyond following the second dose. That goes for anyone, regardless of whether you want to travel or not. That would give you, as a group, about a 94 to 95% efficacy and a good safety profile. One of the biggest things that are really not well understood is people ask, why should I even have to wear a mask after I get my second shot? And the reason is very clear that the primary endpoint of the vaccine trial was clinically apparent infection. So you could conceivably get infected, get no symptoms, and still have virus in your nasopharynx, which means that you would have to wear a mask to prevent you from infecting someone else, as well as the other side of the coin, where you may not be totally protected yourself. So getting vaccinated does not say now I have a free pass to travel, nor does it say that I have a free pass to put aside all of the public health measures that we talk about all the time. So guess what? Not only do you potentially have to wear a mask, you also would have to get maybe that COVID test even after having had the vaccine. You got to do all that stuff. You got to get the vaccine, and then you're no more free than before you got the vaccine, which doesn't strike me as a way to talk me into getting the vaccine. 
Um, yesterday, see if I can sneak this in. Yesterday, we were telling you that uh, there's talk about double bagging. In other words, wearing multiple masks. If that's the case, why not wear an N95 mask? That question came up for the director of the CDC, Dr. Walensky. Here she is on N95 masking and double masking. Everybody should be wearing a mask. Um, everybody, if you're wearing a cloth mask, it should be a multi-layered mask so that you have several layers of protection for a single mask. And there are certainly um, ongoing studies evaluating the, the protective efficacy of these masks, especially in the context of these new variants we're seeing. And so we'll see more data on that to come. Is the reason the CDC is not recommending N95 masks like this for everybody is because there's not enough? Because it does seem to offer a lot more protection. Uh, Dr. Abrar Karan recently said that if, if people wore these masks in public, we could start to really bring the pandemic down, almost end it within four weeks, is what he said, an extraordinary statement. But why not just recommend it, especially with these more transmissible variants? Yeah, it's a really good question and one we get a lot. Um, I have spent a reasonable amount of time in an N95 mask. Um, they're hard to tolerate all day, every day. And in fact, when you really think about um, how well people will wear them, I worry that if, if we suggest or require that people wear N95s, they won't wear them all the time. They're, they're very hard to breathe in when you wear them properly. They're very hard to tolerate when you wear them for long periods of time. Okay, so the reason why the N95 mask works so well is because you can't breathe. <laughs> you can't breathe in the damn thing. And by the way, if you have a hard time breathing with one mask, imagine how hard it would be trying to breathe through two. Oh yeah, this is this is going really well, don't you think? Oh, unbelievable. Back with more in a moment, Jimmy Baird Show, AM 950 KPRC. Something we're learning about 46, and this comes straight from his um, from his press secretary Jen Psaki. The P is silent again. P S A K I. Why is that not Psaki? Why does that bother you, Jimmy? I don't know. It just does. Jen Psaki wants you to know that. Um, 46 promised in a press conference that he was upping the goal to 1.5 million vaccinations. Is that per day? Yeah, I think it was per day, right? 1.5 million people per day. Yeah, it was a per day thing. The initial goal was 1 million. Uh, Mr. President, we're already doing 1 million. That's what, you know, that's what Trump was getting done. Okay, then we're going to do a million five. 1.5 million per day because we have to do better than Trump. But Jen Psaki wants you to know that that's not really it that's not really a promise. That that's not really that's not really um an an expectation. She said he's just being optimistic. That's not a a concrete goal. That is that is like the, Oh, okay. It's like when it's like when um, when you said about the goal here in the state of Texas um, that uh, that we're going to eliminate all traffic deaths, every single one of them. You know, we lose thousands of people every year on Texas roads. We have a lot of roads. We have a lot of drunks. 
we have a lot of bad drivers, as every state does. And we have a lot of people at 2 o'clock in the morning wrapping themselves around poles and, you know, going wrong ways down the expressway, hitting, you know, an 18-wheeler, for example. Zero, though. Zero. That's the goal. Zero traffic deaths. Well, it's not really a, a goal when you get right down to it. Nobody really thinks you can get to zero traffic deaths. It's just, it's, it's um, an affirmation. We're big into affirmations now. In fact, affirmations are more important than goals here in the United States of America. It's not about what you can actually do. It's what you want to do. That's what counts. It's what you want to do. You know, your heart's in the right place. You definitely, you, you, that's a great affirmation. Yes, yes, let's go for zero traffic deaths. It'll never happen, but let's do, go for it anyway. I think it's the same thing with 1.5, you might as well say 2 million, 2.8 million, pick a number. If all it is is an affirmation and it's not a goal, then pick whatever number you want. Well, it should be something we could achieve. I don't care if it's something you could achieve. Is it something you will achieve? Don't put out numbers that are not achievable. Tell us what you can do. I'm, I'm, I'm fine with optimism, but I'm not fine with optimism for the sake of it. Op, the optimism has, it has to be based on something. It's got to be based on your ability to actually do it. And that's where I guess um, the Department of Defense evidently is coming in. Evidently, the Department of Defense had got a request from FEMA. As you know, FEMA doesn't always have the... We're relying on FEMA. FEMA doesn't always have the best track record when it comes to uh, getting aid after hurricanes, uh, let alone um, doing vaccinations. So I'm not sure how I feel about this. But the Department of Defense has received a request from FEMA for assistance and administering COVID-19 vaccines at various locations around the country. Now, I'm going to guess that a lot of these would be rural locations, you know, West Texas and other, other places where the population density is, is rather thin and where you don't have the, the, the same level of healthcare facilities as you do in a place like Houston. The department is evaluating the request with what kinds of support it could provide. That's according to Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby. He said, given the significance of the request, it will be reviewed urgently but carefully to determine what military assets could be made available to help safely. The new defense secretary has said DOD is committed to doing as much as it possibly can to assist the whole of government effort against COVID-19. Um, there is talk that one of the possible solutions would be to send up to 10,000 active duty and National Guard forces to so-called vaccination mega-hubs. Now, I'm not sure I know to be absolutely certain what they mean by mega-hub. By mega-hub, I don't know if they're talking about uh, a place that you would go to receive a vaccination or if it would a place where they would accumulate uh, the, and disperse the vaccinations. That, that's a little sketchy to me right at the moment. But 
46 said during a press conference it's going to be a logistical challenge that exceeds anything we've ever tried in this country, but I think we can do it. COVID-19 advisor to the White House, Andy Slavitt, said it's going to be, quote-unquote, months before all Americans who want a coronavirus can get one. That's real specific, don't you think? Months? Month with an S on it? Huh. Well... I mean, we knew that. We knew that. You know, it it has taken people three or four days to get on the Harris County wait list. I gave up trying to get on the wait list. Although I might have to. If I want to go on my summer vacation, I might have to. (laughs) Oh, Lord. So that's that's kind of the situation we're in at the moment. Uh, By the way, um, 46 signed some more executive orders. But it was, I think we're going to have the audio tomorrow morning. I think we've uh, isolated the audio for tomorrow morning's show, Houston's Morning News, on News Radio 740 KTRH. I'm not sure what time between 5 and 8 we're going to do it. But uh, we have the audio of uh, Joe Biden a number of years ago basically saying um, that only dictators rule through executive order. (laughs) If that's the case then he's the biggest dictator in the history of this country. At least he is so far. He has set an all-time record for executive orders. I, I can't even, I've, I've completely lost count. We're in the 30s somewhere. And the guy has only been in office since January the 6th. So three weeks, three weeks. He, that's more, that's how many, or, that's like, he's, he's, work, he's averaging the better part of two executive orders per day. Every day during this administration so far. If ruling by executive order is the the act of a dictator, this guy is the most prolific dictator in the history of the United States of America so far. Um, there's a couple of them that came out today. We're going to have uh, David Block joining us uh, less just under an hour from now. He's with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. He does a lot of work on health care issues. So there was a, an Obamacare executive order today. We'll talk to him about that. Um, 46 said he has promised to make health care more affordable and available. He says his executive order today takes one more step towards doing that. Um, the Department of Health and Human Services is going to reopen enrollment on the Federal Affordable Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare Exchange. Um, they will do that between February 15th and May the 15th. It would give anybody who missed the most recent sign-up period, which ended December the 15th, access to Obamacare policies and to federal assistance to pay for them. Roughly 15 million uninsured people could benefit according to the Kaiser Family Foundation. Now, I don't think there's any special deal that he's offering up as far as benefits or paying for those benefits that wasn't offered up back in October, November, December. So I would guess that those who thought they could afford Obamacare already got it if they didn't have their own health insurance. So I'm un- it's un- unclear to me how many more people would be impacted by that, but we'll get David Blood on and, and see what he thinks of that. And the other, he had another one too. That's two pieces of legislation he had today. One, the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare that we mentioned. Um, and another one 
which puts an end to the Trump policy that bars funding for organizations that provide abortion counseling and referrals in other countries. I'm not sure why that was deemed to be so important. So add that to the list. Racial equity, the economy, health care, all restoring policies from the Obama era. So this is this is Obama 2.0. It is it, well, not that we didn't think it would be, but this is completely Obama 2.0. Back with more in a moment. Jimmy Barrett Show, AM 950 KPRC. We're doing a lot of COVID stuff this hour, so I, I'm kind of throwing a lot of stuff at you. I realize that, but I'm just trying to bring you up to date on this one. Um, another warning coming out from the CDC, expect mild side effects from the vaccine. You know, pain at the injection site, uh, mild fever, that kind of stuff. Not, not, nothing nothing drastic, nothing, nothing unusual. Oh, by the way, don't be afraid just because some people have had a horrible allergic reaction. Don't you be afraid to get the vaccine. They want you to know that. Um, what else they want you to know? Oh, I just want you to know that Oh, they not only is it not 100% effective until after the second shot if you're getting the Pfizer vaccine, but also you could get worse side effects after the second vaccine where you get muscle aches and joint aches. So let's see. I get to, I get to potentially take a vaccine, have side effects, albeit mild, still have to wear a mask, still potentially have to have a, a, a test before I can get on board an airplane. Yeah, this is sounding great so far. Oh, here's one more to add to the mix. This suggests that if you're over 65, you should not get this new vaccine. This warning comes from our friends in Germany. Right now, we aren't getting that vaccine. We have the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines. But there is a AstraZeneca vaccine and another one on the horizon from Johnson & Johnson. AstraZeneca already got approved for use in the United Kingdom and about a half a dozen other countries, including Germany. However, German officials just released a statement that they do not recommend the AstraZeneca vaccine for people over the age of 65. Um, I'm not quite sure why that is. But evidently, must be the reaction. Must be the reaction you get from it. But they are not recommending that one for people who are over the age of sixty-five. Okay. Meanwhile, COVID nineteen in our schools. Um. In San Francisco. By the way, you may recall me telling you. Well, probably a couple of months ago, that they were considering doing away with the names of 44 different schools because of you know they had ties to slavery, you know like George Washington and James Madison, um, also Abraham Lincoln. Well, all all those 44 names got eliminated last night at the school board. By the way, even the mayor of San Francisco is miffed. He's saying, why aren't we figuring out ways to get our kids back in school instead of worrying about the names of the schools they can't go to right now? Yeah, that's the mayor of San Francisco. 
Imagine that. The school board, it might be too liberal for the mayor of San Francisco. And certainly, Loudoun County has a similar problem. Now, Loudoun County I know fairly well from from the days I spent living in Virginia. It is in northern Virginia. It's a suburb of Washington, D.C. Just about everything north of Spotsylvania County, which is just north of Richmond, Virginia, has pretty much turned into liberal land up there. That's where the vast majority of the population is. It is um, it is about as left-leaning as as most of California is these days. Um, but there are a few parents who have just about had enough. The, the kids in Loudoun County are not allowed to go to school. All their learning is still online. Now, as we found out from... Uh, our own director of education here in Texas, we estimate here in Texas that our kids are probably about three months behind as it relates to their education. I'm guessing it might be even worse than that, but at least three months behind. And we haven't done anything to address it yet. We have not, uh, we have not um, looked at extending the school year or providing extra curriculum or extra opportunities for kids to learn to try to catch them up. We have a lot, like all states do, we have a lot of kids that have just gone MIA. We don't know where they are. They're not showing up at school. We don't know where they are or what they're doing. This is true in a lot of states. In Loudoun County, where the kids have not been in school yet, they've been out since last March, March of last year. It's going on a year since they've actually been in the classroom. Parents, at least the ones who are more conservative to moderate, the few that are left, Parents are getting upset. Here is an angry, I mean, this dad is angry. Listen to how angry he is about his kids not being in school. You're a bunch of cowards hiding behind our children as an excuse for keeping schools closed. The garbage workers who pick up my freaking trash risk their lives every day more than anyone in this school system. Figure it out or get off the podium because you know what? There are people like me and a lot of other people out there who will gladly take your seat and figure it out. Woo! I'll tell you what. When it's time to hand out punishment at that house, I bet that that dad has no problem. I bet that dad believes in spanking. Or he'll yell really, really loud before he gives you time out, one or the other. I can't say I blame him. Greg Gutfeld, by the way, for what it's worth, had a response to the dad. It's kind of a flip response, but he says he understands why that dad's so angry. This is why I don't have kids. Primarily for this reason, uh, in case of a pandemic. I know it's pandemic is a rare occurrence, but for me, in my lifetime, it actually paid off. Uh, I look at the stress this guy's going through, and I feel for him. He's stuck with his kids all the time. And children <laughs> are horrible creatures. People think they're like little humans. No, they're conduits for evil. Yeah. And they and they, they can ruin, ruin your day the more that you're around them. So I feel bad for him during a lockdown. I'm very, you know, right. I'm alone almost you know all what? day. So... <laughs> I would I would have to say it is probably very good that Greg Gutfeld never had children. If that if that's your attitude about children, it's probably a, you probably made the right decision not having any children. Listen, I understand why parents are so frustrated. I think a lot of us were getting to that level 
before our kids could go back to school. And our kids weren't out of school, relatively speaking, all that long. Certainly not compared to other places. Can you imagine right now if your kids had not been in school at all and it wasn't your choice? I realize there's some, you know, some scared parents out there that are still having their kids do virtual learning uh, out of uh, maybe an, an excess, in my opinion, of caution. But at least it was your choice. Those parents, they don't have that choice. All right, Fox News is next to four. Hour number two is coming up. We're going to talk to the founder of the Millennial Debt Foundation, somebody who actually still cares about the national debt. It's coming up at 418. Stand by for more Jimmy Baird Show, AM 950 KPRC. What we need is more common sense. More common sense. We've got to use plain old common sense. Breaking down the world's nonsense. About how American common sense will see us through. With the common sense of Houston. I'm just pro-common sense. For Houston, from Houston. Where is talking about common sense? This is the Jimmy Barrett Show. Brought to you by ViewIn.com. Now, here's Jimmy Barrett. Come listen to the story of a man named Jed. Poor Mountaineer Barry barely kept his family fed. Then one day he was hunting for some food, and up to the ground come a bubbling crude oil, that is. Black tea. Or is it techno? Texas tea. Oil. Oil in them there hills. And then there them there ground. What are we gonna do? We're we're still gonna extract oil, right? We're still gonna extract it. How we how are we gonna make lipstick? How will AOC get her lipstick? Do you think AOC knows that that lipstick comes from petroleum-based products along with thousands upon thousands of other items that we use on a day-to-day basis? Now she'll say, well, that doesn't pollute. Or maybe she would say that. Maybe she would. Maybe she's, maybe she's going to uh, drop legislation requiring lipstick manufacturers, cosmetic manufacturers to come up with new ways to make this stuff. You know, the sad part of the, the, the draconian measures, at least in my personal opinion, that uh, 46 has already put into place as it relates to the energy sector that hits us particularly hard here in Texas. The sad part is it, it right now, maybe you haven't felt it. I certainly haven't felt it. I don't work in the energy sector. You know, nobody's declared war on my job yet, although I'm pretty sure that's coming. Uh, nobody's declared war on what I do for a living yet. And for a lot of people who don't work in energy, okay, yeah, we got to save the planet. It's all good. No, it's not all good. It's not all good because we're not, we're not really going to save the planet by doing that. At any rate, it's the workers I feel sorry for. It's the people who were making a decent living building the Keystone XL pipeline. It's the people who are working out in the oil patch, extracting oil. It's the people who are working in the fracking industry, which which 46 has vowed to completely shut down. Those are the people I feel sorry for. And sometimes, sometimes, even though it seems to fall on deaf ears with the elite, they used to, Democrats anyway, used to pride themselves on being 
the 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 party of the working man, the blue collar working man. They are not that party anymore. That is for sure. If so, they would care what these workers have to say about what life is like for them right now. They say they want us to to move toward a a cleaner future and a cleaner type of energy, but the problem is the people that are that are losing their jobs right now. It's devastating. Uh, to see this happen to American workers. Well, it's just like a kick in the stomach that, you know, knocks the wind out of you. You come look at them in the face and tell them that, uh, you know, I just, from just one stroke of the pen, killed 11,000 high-paying jobs. Yep. One stroke of the pen. Executive orders, of course. Meanwhile, the uh, new energies are John Kerry a guy who has his own private jet, at least his family has his own private jet. Well, that's what that's what I mean. They are the epitome of hypocrites. They, they're not going to stop flying. How are we, how are we going to fly that airplane <laughs> on electricity? I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how they're going to pull that one off. At any rate, John Kerry, not very sympathetic to the loss of jobs. Workers have been fed a false narrative. No surprise, right, for the last few years. They've been fed uh, the notion that somehow dealing with climate is coming at their expense. No, it's not. What's happening to them is happening because of other market forces already taking place. What other market forces? What is he talking about? What other market, what is happening to them is, is market forces? No, it's government forces. Ted Cruz, uh, he was having none of that. He had something to say about executive orders, and he had something to say about the arrogance of John Kerry. You know, last week I, I sat outside the Capitol. I listened to Joe Biden give his inauguration speech. I thought it was a good speech. I, I was glad to see him make an appeal towards unity. Uh, I think all of us would like to see greater national unity at this time when we have so much division, so much anger and hatred pulling this country apart. But then he, he, he left giving that speech and he returned to, to, to the Oval Office and literally within minutes began signing these executive orders that were radical and extreme. As you noted, he signed an order canceling the Keystone Pipeline. 11,000 jobs with a stroke of a pen he made go away. 8,000 of those are union jobs. And, and at the same time, he rejoined the Paris climate deal, which threatens to destroy thousands of high-paying jobs across this country. And, and the answer, I've asked multiple Biden nominees what they would say to the union workers who just lost their jobs because Joe Biden decided they didn't deserve a job. And, and essentially, nominee after nominee after nominee has said, well, tough luck. You know, John Kerry, in that same news conference you, you, you put up, he said, well, they need to learn to make better choices. What an arrogant, out-of-touch wow. statement for a centimillionaire to say. They need to learn to make better choices. I guess, I guess I need to learn make, to make better choices too in their world, right? GM, we were mentioning last hour if you missed it. GM is evidently buying into better choices or their idea of better choices. They say they're not going to be making gas-powered SUVs past 2035. That'll be it. Your last chance to get a Tahoe that runs on gasoline. 
they're going to do away with the internal combustion engine. Ford has been pretty much saying the same thing. Where's the infrastructure? Where, where's, where, where are the, the power plants to produce the electricity we're going to need? And by the way, there's only one power plant that I can think of that is not going to be producing emissions. We, you, you, there are, you could not possibly erect enough wind turbines on the planet to generate the kind of electricity we would need. We would have to have much more nuclear power. When is the last time we built a nuclear power plant here in the United States of America? Are the environmentalists ready to support nuclear power? Completely clean. I mean, as long as there isn't a nuclear reactor problem at some point in time. Because without that, you, you haven't got a prayer making that happen. Not a prayer. All right, here's another thing we don't have a prayer of doing. Getting rid of the national debt. And in fact, your average American doesn't seem to even think about the national debt anymore. Well, there's a group called the Millennial Debt Foundation. They That's, that's all they think about. Their founder joins us. They're going to be in town as part of a Texas Public Policy Foundation seminar. We'll talk to the founder about that coming up next here on AM 950 KPRC. All right, 420 our time here on AM 950 KPRC. Remember when we used to worry about the national debt? Do you remember that? I sure remember that. Well, we used to remember it when, when, when Republicans were in charge, especially in the White House. Um, we kind of forgot about that for a while, even during Republican stewardship. And they certainly don't worry about the national debt when the Democrats are in charge. But it might be a good time to remind everybody about it, where it's at, where it's going, what the consequences of it are. In fact, there's going to be something called the Stewardship Series, um, conversations across America on the consequences of debt, kind of put together by our friends at the Millennial Debt Foundation. Uh, they're going to have a panel featuring land commissioner here in Texas. This is going to be in Austin, by the way, uh, coming up uh, tomorrow, in fact. George P. Bush will be there. U.S. Congressman Dan Crenshaw will be there. U.S. Congressman Chip Roy will be there. And our next guest will be emceeing it. His name is Weston Womp. He is the founder of the Millennial Debt Foundation. Weston, you must have been feeling like uh, the lone wolf out there for the last, uh, I don't know, 12 years or so when it comes to national debt issues. <laughs> well, I'm young, so time's on my side. But unfortunately, as it applies to this issue, this is a, you know, this is a set of problems that are long-term in nature. And politicians in Washington in their 70s don't exactly have the same incentive as guys like me and Dan Crenshaw do to talk about these things. But you're right, man. It's lonely out there. I was having a conversation with former Senator Jim DeMint two days ago, the president of the Heritage Foundation for a long period of time, and, uh, and he said the same thing. You know, our organization is one of the only ones in the country that's beating this drum, but we're going to keep doing it. And I'll tell you an important lesson. I, I saw it again today. You turn on CNBC and you listen to this country's smartest financial minds, and you'll hear the deficit mentioned on a daily basis. You turn on political commentary and you probably won't. There's a reason for that. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the people who actually understand finance know that this is not sustainable. Um, see, you mentioned that you're young and you have time on your side. 
I am not so young. I feel like I'm the one that has time on my side. I'm not the one that's going to be saddled with this debt. <laughs> you are, and your kids are going to be saddled with this debt. That's what I feel sorry for. Yeah, that's a real thing. I'm 33, and by the way, I've got a fourth kid on the way. And I'll tell you, I think it's out of my own self-interest as much as theirs that I care. And I, I do see the writing on the wall. The Congressional Budget Office is one of the few nonpartisan, widely respected uh, functions within the federal government that we all ought to trust more than we distrust. And their latest numbers show that when millennials enter retirement or begin to retire 30 years from now, the country's debt-to-GDP ratio we're going to get a little wonky for a second, will be 200%. It's 100% today. It'll run to 200%, which means we're like $130 trillion in debt. But the point is that never in human history has a country thrived with a debt load that's twice as large as its economy. The only real example of it around the world is Japan, and they're totally stagnated. So everything we know about America, that's not an exaggeration, everything we know about America going back a couple hundred years would change if all of a sudden we weren't a growth engine. If we were a stagnant economy, this place wouldn't feel like home in the way that that we know it. And so I, I just think these are conversations that have to be had when it's awkward. You know, some people say, "Oh, there's a pandemic; we need relief." Well, that's that's certainly true. In fact, this is a teachable moment about why uh, it's so unacceptable that the federal government has been run as poorly as it's been for the last ten to fifteen years. Because it's in times like this that the government does need to be able to be flexible and help people. And we're really not in a position to do that right now. And all this borrowing has generational consequences. Well, the problem is, is we're not in, really, you're right, we're not in a position to do that, but we're going to go ahead and we're going to do that anyway. And and I'm just waiting. Right now, I, I think that it's not real for a lot of people because we haven't seen um, inflation kick in. Interest rates have been kept artificially low. At some point in time, that's going to change. It's going to have to change. I don't know if a $15 an hour minimum wage is going to be the tipping point that's going to do it. But once interest rates start to go up, I think they're going to go up rather rapidly. And then it's going to come, it's going to start to hit home with folks. Yeah, well, there's no question. You nailed it. You got right to the heart of it. I mean, there's two keys here in a lot of ways, right? What's the driver of the deficits? Well, it's mostly health care. And what's the trigger? Well, there could be a whole lot of different triggers. And in fact, there are some doomsday scenarios. But short of all those, just modest increases in interest rates, given our country's debt load, will have a catastrophic effect. I was, I was texting some friends uh, based on some of the commentary in the financial world today just a little while ago, and I gave them this example. If you fast forward 10 years from now, we're, we'll be $30 trillion in debt here in a few months as a country, $30 trillion. You fast forward a decade, and you include some of the programs that liberals would like to uh, install in the federal government, and it's fair to assume that a decade from now we'll be $50 trillion in debt. Here's what that means if, for example, interest rates went up 2%. Our average interest rate right now in federal debt is about 1.7%. Let's say it went up two points, which is not crazy. It's not a, you know extreme change. But if it did, those two percentage points would cost us $1 trillion a year just 10 years from now. $1 trillion a year just in added interest payments, and that's where you get to a real painful situation. But to your point, you don't feel it right now. Uh, it's one of those things in life where you don't feel the pain until it's too late, and it's the reason why we're doing the stewardship series and we're having conversations about 
really, the, you know, what's the moral thing to do? What, what, what is the historic thing to do as Americans? Do we think about the next election cycle? Is that what we're asking of our elected officials? Or are we asking them to think a generation down the road? My dad served in Congress for 16 years, so kind of the whole time I was growing up. And one of the things I learned real quick is you can basically categorize people who serve in Congress into one, one of two buckets. They're either politicians or they're public servants. The politicians are always trying to get reelected, and, and the, the tail will wag the dog. The public servants, guys like the late Tom Coburn, the you know, notorious senator from up the road in Oklahoma, is an example of a public servant. He'll do the right yeah. thing even when it's hard. Yeah. Hey, before we run out of time, I know that the, this event that you're a part of tomorrow afternoon, 1 o'clock Central Time, tomorrow afternoon, is being live streamed. No charge, correct? All you have to do is pick up the live stream and watch it for yourself. Yeah, that's right. We're doing it in partnership with the Texas Public Policy Foundation. So you can find them on social media anywhere. Go to millennialdebt.org. That's our website. You can find the live stream there. Uh, also doing it with Americans for Prosperity's Texas chapter. And I think Bush and Crenshaw and Chip Roy represent the future of fiscal conservatism. And I, I think it's fiscal conservatism that can put America on a, on a trajectory where we thrive and grow economically for a long period of time. But it's going to require tough decisions. Yeah, it is. It's going, to, it's going to require, at this point, it requires, to pay off that kind of national debt, it requires pain and sacrifice. Something we haven't always been good at unless we're going to war. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you, West. Appreciate it. Welcome to Texas, and thank you, sir. That is uh, Weston Womp, Millennial Debt Foundation. Again, you can uh, you can catch it on YouTube, on the Texas Public Policy Foundation website, Facebook, Twitter, lots of places. Just look for the Millennial Debt Foundation. And again, the uh, name of the program is the Stewardship Series. Back with more in a moment. A couple of more executive actions today on health care. David Blot from the TPPF on that next, AM 950 KPRC. It was Joe Biden who once said, only dictators rule through executive action. <laughs> and he has set the all-time record already, at least, at least for the first three weeks in office. I, I've lost count. It's in the 30s, I think, somewhere. Two more today having to do with health care. That's why we're bringing on David Blott, Texas Public Policy Foundation. That is his expertise. That is his forte. Let's start with this, uh, David. Uh, uh, 46 has reopened Obamacare enrollment for February 15th to May 15th. He says because of COVID-19 pandemic, my guess is just to try to sign as many people up as he can. Have you heard anything about what kind of a, of what kind of a carrot he's dangling to try to get people to sign up? Well, Jimmy, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, the, the carrot is being able to access uh, those plans that, frankly, a lot of people don't really want because you still have less than 10 million people of our total population that are signed up in the ACA exchanges. Uh, it, when you look at the last enrollment period, over 20% of those that were on the exchange did not renew because they didn't really find any value in it. So I don't expect there to be a lot of, of enrollment coming up in these next three months that it will be opened up again. I would guess, though, that they're probably going to offer more uh, more government funding to, to supplement what it costs you in order to pick up on this Obamacare, don't you? I do. Actually, one of the things that came out of the order, although many of what, what, what is said in these documents is not very specific, it's all very vague, and he's giving a lot of discretion to the agency heads, which who knows what will come of that. 
But they're going to give more subsidies back to the insurance companies. Obamacare was, was a boon to the insurance industry. It empowers, emboldens, and enriches them, not the American people. But uh, what we'll see is a reduction in, in, uh, in some of the premiums in order to uh, get people to join on and, and show a success for the administration. But uh, people aren't fooled. There's really not the kind of value that, uh, that they expect from an insurance carrier. Uh, certainly what he's trying to do is he's trying to shore up the whole idea of Obamacare, though. I don't, I don't know if he's wasting his time doing it. Um, you know, it's often been said that the only way you really make Obamacare a true part of, of, of Americana is to do away with private health care. Um, we're nowhere near that yet, but do you suspect that we're headed in that direction again? You know, that's the direction a lot of people want to go into, and uh, that's, that's unfortunate because that is not going to be good for patients. We've seen that in Obamacare. We've seen that in the states that have expanded Medicaid. Uh, the, the overall care, although the access is there, more people have access, but, you know, giving somebody a, a, a card to put in their wallet is not health care. And what we've seen in those states that have expanded Medicaid and in those states that uh, have really expanded the ACA, you have less access because they're not able to get in to see the doctor. They, they still they have the ability to see that doctor because of that card. But what ends up happening is they go to the emergency room. And that's not the best kind of care that we can offer people. You know, as you're saying that, I'm, I'm kind of imagining what we're going through right now in trying to get these COVID-19 vaccinations out. Uh, we, we've had, you know, we, we've seen, I think, you know, Harris County is kind of a prime example. I'm sure this is happening uh, all across the country where you have uh, the county health department uh, that really isn't set up for for this. Um, that has you know the, the, just now getting around to having appointment sign up sheets on their websites in, in 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 Harris County. It's been about four days in a row where they've had glitches and uh, and and uh, where people have been locked out and and all kinds of other issues. I, I'm just kind of imagining you know that on steroids when you talk about national health care. Why would it be any different? You've right. got a go- you've got the government controlling the distribution of services that they're really not good at uh, distributing, nor are they really trained for it. Let's talk about the vaccinations real quick. Uh, there was a doctor. There was a story about a doctor in Pennsylvania that came out today. He cannot get the vaccinations in his office to give to his patients. He said, "If you gave me a thousand shots today, I'd have it in a thousand arms." Uh, yet they're struggling to to get that done through the county. That's happening all across the country. We've got to really empower the physicians across the country so that they can get it done because that's really their job that's what they're trained to do right and i don't i don't think we we get successful mass distribution until that happens although i guess now the government is talking about the department of defense getting involved getting fema involved and fema thinks it's over their head and they're talking about getting the department of defense and the pentagon involved yeah that that sounds like a great idea doesn't it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, it, it's well. There's a military term that starts with cluster. I think we can all figure out the rest of it. That's what that's what I'm imagining at this okay, point in time. How about you? I think that's an appropriate term, Jimmy. <laughs> you uh, know, I, if I may, I want to I want to share something that that really is is aggravating that has come out of this language. Uh, one of the first things that is said in in this document and as part of the executive orders today that focus on healthcare. Uh, and I'll quote it, the first part. It's after four years of attempts to strip health care from millions of Americans, uh, President Biden was going to sign these executive orders. The, the most infuriating thing to both people on the left and the right was that uh, there was a, a regulatory freeze 
uh, I believe it was a week and a half ago. And one of the executive orders that President Trump signed uh, uh, that finalized in December but didn't become effective until the 22nd, but it didn't become effective because the freeze happened on the 20th. On the 20th. So two days before this order was to become effective, um, people who, who need insulin and epinephrine, they could have gone to a community health center and they could have gotten that drug that normally cost insulins around $400 a month. Epinephrine is about a $700 uh, price tag for the shot. They could have gotten it for $10. They, they, were, they were stopped in their tracks. And so the party that has won elections based on their, um, uh, the, the premise that they wanted to protect people with pre-existing conditions has put them in harm's way by not allowing this order to go forward and allowing them to get affordable care. I don't know what you think of the CDC or the World Health Organization, um, but I'm watching... Um, very interestingly, of what's going on right now, uh, not only with the vaccines, but how this administration appears to be you know, setting itself up. They're talking now about, well, first of all, that um, uh, I think Dr. Fauci made it fairly clear during a CNN um, town hall on COVID-19 last night that getting the vaccine will not liberate you from anything. You are still going to have to wear a mask. You are still going to have to Jimmy, no, every... it's, not, it's not one mask, it's two. Yeah, they want you to double bag it now. Yes, you're right. <laughs> double bag it. And they don't, no, don't bother with the N95 masks. They're too hard to breathe in. Well, yeah. I got news. No, I, you know, why stop it too is what I say. <laughs> the more the merrier, right? But you're still going to have to jump through all the same hoops and follow all the same rules, even after you have the vaccine. Well, I... Are you asking what I what I think about all that? Yes, I am. I don't think it's it, it falls in line with what we know about science. If you look at some of the leading physicians at, at Johns Hopkins and even the CDC, they've said at some point that masks don't work. Uh, double bagging is just not going to necessarily do the job because you're you're talking about uh, a virus that's significantly smaller than uh, the uh, the the holes that are. Uh, uh, there is a part of a material mask. So right. it, it's, it's really more about control than it is about science. And I so right. this, this belief in science, as they like to say, which I don't, I think is, is you know, nobody believes in science. Science isn't something to be believed in. Uh, science is a process that should promote a culture of, of, um, of, uh, of, uh, questioning of, of conflict so that we can arrive at some kind of truth. Science is ever looking and seeking out the truth. So this belief of science is more of a religion than anything else, and it's actually more about control, uh, which is what I believe. I believe you're right about that, and I believe they're going to add one more layer to this, and I know the, the CDC is already talking about it, and that is a requirement that you take a, um, a COVID test, regardless of whether you've had the vaccine or not, take a COVID test three days before getting on board a domestic flight. There's a lot of summer vacations where people are going to be left scrambling at the last possible second to go get a test for, for a vacation they may have already paid for. And if you get a false positive, then what? I guess you're out of luck, right? Yeah. And, yeah, it's there's just a lot of... Uh, administrative burden associated with all of these rules uh, and and who's going to who's going to govern them who's going to oversee them who's going to hold people accountable well my guess is 
that they they certainly have a lot of leverage right now with the airlines because of all the all the stimulus money that's been given to the airlines. All it all it's going to take is one phone call from a government official at the at the federal level to say this is what we want you to do, and yeah. and they're going to be stuck because they're beholding to the federal government. All right, David Blot. Good to hear from you, sir. Have a great day. Hey, likewise. You do the same. That's uh, David Blod, Texas Public Policy Foundation, here on AM 950 KPRC. Oh, by the way, governor's fighting back. Governor's fighting back on energy. Governor Abbott. Governor Abbott was in the Permian Basin today. What did he have to say? What is he going to try to do to fight back against these 40, you know, President 46's executive orders on things like the Keystone Pipeline and, and fracking. What is he prepared to do? That We'll talk about that next. You're on AM 950 KPRC. It is uh, 448 now. Here on AM 950 KPRC. Okay, um, the governor fighting back. Well, as well he should. I think he feels that our state is being directly threatened with uh, these executive orders, especially as it relates to energy, and he would be right. You want to talk about, you want to talk about having a target on, on our rather large backside? This is a state that still is relatively conservative. This is a state that is run by Republicans. This is a state that pumps oil and natural gas and provides it to the rest of the country and the world, still one of the top oil producers in the world. This is a state that represents in many different ways some of the last bastions of a traditional American lifestyle. All, all those things are things that the left hates. So much so that they trucked in millions upon millions upon millions upon millions of dollars to try to get this state to turn blue, and it failed miserably. Speaking of blue, did you hear that Beto's talking about running for governor? How much money would the George Soroses of the world throw into Texas to try to elect Beto O'Rourke governor of the state. Can you imagine life with Beto O'Rourke as our governor? Good God Almighty. Anyway, back to our current governor, Greg Abbott. He was in the Permian Basin. Today, he announced a series of steps the state's going to take to try to push back against the new administration when it comes to oil and gas. News conference was in Odessa. The governor vowing that Texas would pursue an aggressive legal strategy against the current administration, much like Abbott, than the attorney general did against former President Barack Obama. Abbott signed an executive order that said he would, quote, direct every state agency to use all lawful powers and tools to challenge any federal action that threatens the energy sector in Texas. And he announced he supports legislation that would prohibit cities and counties from banning natural gas appliances. Who's talking about that? Austin, probably. San Francisco was uh, talking about doing that last year. I don't know if that ever passed in San Francisco or not. 
But there there are places in California that I believe have done that, that have banned natural gas appliances. Clean burning gas. Nope, they want you to have an electric stove. Because, because, why? Because it's running on solar or wind? No. It's plugged into the wall. That electricity is coming from the power plant. The power plant's being run on probably natural gas. <laughs> it's crazy. Um, Governor went on to say, I'm in Midland to make clear that Texas is going to protect the oil and gas industry from any type of hostile attack from Washington, D.C. Texas is not going to stand idly by and watch the Biden administration kill jobs in Midland, in Odessa, or any other place across the entire region. Unclear to me is what he can do about it. He did acknowledge that in Texas there is either zero or close to zero federal lands where drilling is done. So that executive order that cuts off federal lands from oil exploration doesn't really impact the state. Not like it does New Mexico. So that part doesn't matter. Uh, Certainly a Keystone Pipeline mattered. I don't know that he can do anything about that. Abbott said he's convinced the Biden administration will be trying to take actions that will make it harder, more difficult, and more costly for oil and gas businesses in Texas, which are major economic drivers for the state. Well, we know he's attacking fracking. We have fracking here in Texas. As for legislation on natural gas appliances, Abbott did not cite any momentum for banning them in Texas, but he did point to the San Francisco decision, which outlawed such appliances in new buildings. Not immediately clear if there is already a bill filed with the Texas legislature in order to achieve Abbott's goal of making sure it doesn't get banned here. Like I said, Austin would be the place. San Antonio might be a close second. But Austin would be the place. That's for sure. Uh, Responding to the governor's news conference, the Texas Democrat Party, which, by the way, I get emails from them. I don't know why, but I do. I get them every single day about any Republican piece of legislation or politician regarding Texas, and they are quite amazing. I'll leave it at that. Um, the Texas Democrat Party said Abbott was not being was not yes not being honest with working Texans, noting that the state's energy industry is still hurting. Its path forward is through renewable sources, not fossil fuels, even in Texas. Well, this is not all Democrats though. There are Democrats in Congress who are pushing back. There are Democrats in Congress who understand that oil and gas are the lifeblood of this state. The party spokesperson, the Texas party spokesperson, Abhi Rahman, said to save Texas energy, we need to demand new leadership in the state that is honest up front with Texans and embraces the future. Yeah. Where are all those high-paying energy sector jobs in solar and wind. We have we have solar, we have wind, 
there's not enough wind and not enough turbines on the planet to power all of our needs. I'm a, I'm a, I'm probably if, if you just listen to me a little bit, you probably think, oh, that Jimmy Barrett, he doesn't want he doesn't want an electric car. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't he doesn't support clean energy. I support all energy, including oil and gas. I, I support all energy. When you can make when you can make solar efficient, I'm all for it. In some point in time, we'll probably need to go in that direction. I'm not worried about the climate falling apart the way some people are. I, I, I'm not convinced that we're on the road to doomsday when it comes to the climate. I'm not convinced that global warming is a bad thing. I've talked to a fair amount of people who say, you know what? It's actually pretty good. Global warming is actually pretty good. You know, we have we haven't had major droughts. That's the that's the only thing that I would be concerned about in global warming would be major droughts, you know, drying up all the farmland, but warmer temperatures and moisture, that that grows a lot of stuff. It's not necessarily a bad thing. Anyway, the governor is going to try to fight back where he can. I think, you know, like in like any other uh, position, a, a governor has limited resources as far as what he could do to fight the federal government. I mean, there are certain things we can control as the state and we need to in order to protect ourselves because, you know, if, if nothing else, I think politicians, even Democrats, for the most part, seem to understand that their universities, our universities, where they're teaching, all the, you know, where they're indoctrinating our children, well, guess who's helping pay for all that? Oil and gas. Have a great evening. See you tomorrow morning, bright and early at 5 a.m. on Houston's Morning News, back here at 3 on AM 950 KPRC.